Chance. That's Hello and Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. But none of this would be possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. Welcome. Before we proceed, I was thinking about the last episode and speaking of William feeding and providing shelter for those in need when they came to the various posts of which he was master. He recorded very few details in the post journals of the assistance he offered, but others spoke of his kindness. I wakened from sleep last night remembering my ter- maternal grandfather, Walter Colin Young Sutherland, whom I never met as he died in 1949 at the age of 63, before I was born. He and my grandmother, Elizabeth McBain, operated Sutherland's General Store in Clandeboy, Manitoba, one of those stores that had almost everything, including gas pumps and homemade ice cream. I have been told by many people about his generosity and how he helped families survive the Depression, giving them credit to buy food and gas, doing what he could to help those in his community. I like to think that generosity came from Nahaway and William, passed on down the line, a quality that earns my respect more than any other. William and Nahaway and family arrived at York from Wegg's house on June 19, 1796. They stayed at York Factory until mid-July. William was ordered back to Wegg's house to, quote, relinquish it, which supports Brian Smith's theory from the previous episode that the buildings of that post had been intentionally burned down to keep the Northwest Company from using it. The family arrived at Split Lake August 9th with Phoebe, age 3, and Catherine, age 1. William was given implicit instructions from the London Committee in a letter from Joseph Colin, chief factor at York Factory, to, quote, erect a house for yourself and see, but you are in no account to fix on a station that will in any way interfere with the Churchill Indians' trade, end quote. This supports the reason why Wegg's house was not kept in use despite its beneficial location. William wrote of the Indians requesting him to build three houses or posts to make trade easier for them with less distance to travel. But I'm curious as to the use of words that Colin used, for yourself and see, in his letter. To what does the letter see refer? Company? Children? The new trading house was to be named Fort Lake, and the residence to be called Hulse House. This was a busy time for William and the men working with him. Winter was close at hand, and they had a lot of work to get done before the weather changed. According to the post log, they started construction on September 3rd and slept in the house for the first time on October 14th. On October 15th, William wrote a great quantity of snow upon the ground and wrote the lake entirely covered with ice on October 23rd. They spent the winter at Hall's house, 
Trade was busy, and the post log indicates many families came to trade, some staying for several days. In the spring of 1797, they built new canoes and mended old ones. Men were sent to Split Lake to retrieve furs left there. They set off mid-June with seven canoes, three large and four small, all loaded with furs for York Factory, arriving July 10th with 3,381 made beavers. A made beaver is a reference to a normal-sized beaver that became a unit of currency between the Hudson's Bay Company and those they did trade with, a system used to calculate payment and debt. The company would extend debt to the home guard for supplies for the winter, valued at so many made beaver, and in the spring the home guard would pay off that debt with furs. The Sinclair family remained at York Factory for several weeks, Nahoy visiting Thukach. They headed inland to Lake House on August 1, 1797. William wasn't sure what the company wanted him to do next. The Cook family spent the winter at Split Lake, not far from William and Nahoy. William Jr., called Credo, was born December 2nd at Lake House. The winter was like previous winters, William and Nahue tending to the business of survival, securing provisions and providing trade when the opportunity arose. William and family traveled to York in company with the Cook family in mid-June of 1798. They unloaded furs and reloaded supplies and trading goods and were told to head back to Lake House. Joseph Colin arrived back on the ship before William and family departed, telling William his instructions from the London Committee were to build a new settlement at Trout River and Deepwater Lake. This lake was also called Holy Lake, H-O-L-E-Y, due to its significant depth. Competition had grown fierce with the Northwest Company and a decline in furs due to over-trapping caused inland trading to move further south toward Lake Winnipeg and west into the Athabasca region. To ease the travel burden on inland traders, Oxford House was to be built at the head of the Trout River. Oxford House. This is the place of greatest significance to me. It is where Nahue raised her family and where she and William lived together the longest. William created a home here, with gardens and cattle growing barley and vegetables. I believe other than Eastaquay, in the Orkneys, this too was where William felt his roots were, his greatest sense of self and his most significant time with the company, as a leader and innovator. The Post Log, a journal of occurrences kept at Oxford House by William Sinclair, Master, commencing July 5, 1798, ending August 7, 1799, is in the archives, and I have read it. They set out from York Factory at 1 p.m. on July 5, 1798. Just before their departure, their friend Shagawawi Thiyanu, a Cree hunter, blew his hand off at the wrist with a gun he had just purchased, the details in the York Factory post-log. He did not want medical attention, nor did he want to stay behind, but he did allow it to be wrapped, and one day later, he and his brother, Calabathalan, got into their canoe and followed the Sinklers to Gordon House. I have a difficult time imagining him able to travel. 
The wound was so severe by the time he arrived at Gordon House, he had to have his arm amputated below the elbow. The details in the York factory correspondence. William performed the amputation. I share this information to demonstrate how closely the Cree, Nahue's people worked with William and other HBC servants. I was able to track William and group's progress on a map with the details from William's post-log entries. July 5th, departed York Factory, 1 p.m. 6 p.m. put up on the lower end of Rainbow Island on Hayes River. July 6th, 7 a.m. underway, put up two turnings above Ten Shilling Creek Head. I'm supposing the term turnings refers to bends or turns in the river. July 7th, 4.30 a.m. underway. 11 a.m. entered the mouth of Steel River. 8 p.m. put up at two turnings up Steel River. July 8th, killed 22 deer while crossing the river. 8 p.m. put up. Remember, the English mean caribou when they write deer. July 9th, 2 p.m., entered the mouth of Hill River. 6 p.m., put up due to rain and wind. July 10th, 5 a.m., underway, until 7 p.m., put up a distance below First Falls on Hill River. July 11th, at 9 a.m., arrived Gordon House on Hill River and stayed until July 18th. And during this time, those 22 deer hides had to be processed and the meat dried, the work falling to Menahoway and Mary, the Cree wife of James Whitford, manager of Gordon House Post. The canoes were patched and repaired. Trade goods were sorted that came on two boats from the factory on July 12th. July 18th, loaded five canoes and departed from Gordon House, crossed over three carrying places, 6 p.m., put up at Stillwater. July 19th, 4 a.m., underway, three carrying places, put up on Swampy Carrying Place in Hill River. The Hill River site is often referenced in the various journals as a stopping place to go, then in various directions from there. July 20th, 7 a.m., underway, five carrying places, 3 p.m., put up on the upper carrying place in Hill River. July 22nd, 5 a.m. underway, 7 a.m. entered mouth of Jack River, four carrying places, 7 p.m. put up Sandy Bay in Knee Lake. July 23rd, 4 a.m. underway, 6 p.m. put up in Sandy Bay, Knee Lake. July 24th, 5 a.m. underway, through Knee Lake, 7 a.m. entered mouth of Trout River. 3 p.m. arrived at entrance to Holy Lake where Oxford House is to be built. They had traveled about 220 miles. They wasted no time and on July 25th chose the spot for the foundation of Oxford House. Local Cree called the lake a bottomless lake. Holy Lake, but was changed to Oxford Lake when the house was established. On July 26th, they laid the foundation of the house with a length of 42 feet by a breadth of 24 feet. July 31st, set the window posts and made the house ready for beams. August 9th, put the roof on the house. August 10th, sent five canoes down to the factory according to instructions received from Mr. Colin, so trade very much happening at this point. 
laid foundation for the fireplace, perhaps of the same unique style of fireplace as Wegg's house. Oxford House became a key location for the Hudson's Bay Company and for Indigenous people. I read a paper written by Christopher Hanks and published by Duke University Press in 1982 called The Swampy Cree and the Hudson's Bay Company at Oxford House. In his writing, Hanks claims Oxford House was never intended for a trading post, but was, quote, established in 1798 as a depot to facilitate the movement of goods inland and not as a post intended to draw a large Indian trade. End quote. I have read correspondence from the London Committee criticizing William for his lack of trade during this time, and William makes mention in the Post Journal of how beavers had been overhunted. So initially, it was very much intended to be a trading post. If we jump ahead a bit, on January 30th, 1799, William wrote, An Indian man came with six beaver skins. He complained that there was no beaver to be found anywhere near to the house. The country all warned this house had been hunted for many years by the Home Guard Indians, so there is not a beaver left within many miles of it. End quote. Hanks claimed that the Oxford House Band of Indigenous People located to this area to provide for the work needing to be done in the movement of goods from the bay to the west, and didn't naturally settle here or occupy this space for their own purposes. I can't comment on this. The Post Journal continues. August 13th, William wrote, Stormed all night, thunder and rain, the lightning was bright and vivid, together with the loud claps of thunder, made it the most awful night that I ever saw in this country or anywhere else. Old English defines the word awful as worthy of respect or fear, striking with awe. Not until 1809 did awful mean very bad. William would be more inclined to the Old English. Continuing, September 2nd, Mr. Isham arrived from the factory with two large canoes for Jack River. September 4th, Mr. Isham embarked for Jack River. Who is this Mr. Isham? It was Charles Isham. The Dictionary of Canadian Biography calls him the half-breed son of James Isham and an Indian woman. End quote. Charles was, quote, allowed to travel to England for his education allowed, a rare privilege granted to the children of traders. Such a double standard, British moving in and claiming all the North and interfering with the peoples of the land, yet holding them as lesser beings, not allowed to travel to England and certainly not on company ships. In 1763, the London Committee wrote to York saying, send home Charles Price, alias Isham, an Indian lad said to be the natural son of Mr. James Isham, deceased. In September of 1763, Ferdinand Jacobs noted in the York Journal, we have sent home Charles Price Isham with his apparel. He was nine years old. The London Committee did not use Isham as Charles' surname during this time and turned him over to Thomas Isham, James' brother and executor. Charles returned to York in 1766 at the age of 12 and served as an apprentice at York for seven years. In 1798, he was 44 and was an inland trader and master of Jack River when he stopped at Oxford House. 
He was the first son of a Hudson's Bay Company servant to rise to the position of master. Moses Norton rose to such standing, but he was considered English despite his Cree mother. When the London Committee used Isham as Charles' surname, they deemed him English. Back at Oxford House, the men had been working on the fireplace and on September 24th laid the foundation of the house fireplace. Trade was steady, people coming and going every day. On September 5th, William wrote, six canoes of bungee Indians arrived with 880 pounds of dried moose meat, 30 pounds of fat, and 250 made beaver. Bungee Indians were a specific group of Métis with Scottish ancestry, the term referencing their unique dialect. In 1870, about 5,000 Métis spoke the language, which by the 1980s was all but lost. Lots of trade happening with meat and furs. September 22nd, snow showers, canoes arrived from York Factory loaded with goods. September 26th, part of the lake covered with ice, snow is a foot deep. Men from York refused to proceed with goods in leaky canoes, would not be held responsible for keeping the goods dry. William helped them repair their canoes, or he gave them his. The post log says five canoes loaded and proceeded on their journey. Three of the young hands were left behind that came out with the fall ship. They were not able to stand the cold and fatigue of the journey. September 29th, 6 a.m. sent John Papley and John Davy down to the factory with the three young hens that were left. According to the York Factory Journal, they arrived there on October 8th, 10 days of travel, and one of the young men was very ill and continued to be ill for some time, though no name was given. October 3rd, Indian man and his wife came to the house. William never used to mention the women, and I'm wondering if these were friends or family of Nahaway who come and go regularly. October 4th laid the joists of the floor of the new house. October 14th, two Indian men arrived at the house, had killed a large moose a little distance from the house, sent four men to fetch the meat at 3 p.m. They returned with 511 pounds of moose flesh. October 15th, sent three men to fetch fish. At 1 p.m. they returned with 400 fish of sorts, traded three deerskins for snowshoe netting. October 16th, the Indian that arrived yesterday set off to his friends, sent a present of brandy, tobacco, and ammunition to a bungee chief who had promised to visit me in the winter. October 21st, part of the lake covered with ice. October 26th, Two men sawing boards, four cutting firewood, and three men to fall birch and bring home for sledges. Taylor employed for men. Meaning Nahway makes William's clothes, or he wouldn't have accidentally or otherwise made that distinction, as there are only men at the post in the minds of the London Committee. October 28th, most parts of the lake taken with ice. November 1st, thick snowy weather. November 4th, severe cold day, three Indian men came to the house with six pair of snowshoes netted. November 5th, very cold weather. November 6th, two men sawing birch for sledges, killed a deer a little distance from the house. November 13th, men employed building a fish house. 
November 14th, three Indian women came to the house with three pair of snowshoes. November 16th, three men hauling home birch for sledges. December 6th, John Papley and John Davy arrived from York Factory. Remember, they left September 29th with the three young men. This was very late in the season for travel, and it must have been a very difficult journey. Winter continued with men and women bringing meat to the house. December 30th, Indian man came to the house with 47 pounds of dried moose meat and 14 beaver skins. Stayed. January 1st, 1799, severe cold day with snow and drifts as any this season. January 2nd, Indian man still at the house. I'm guessing he celebrated the new year with William and Nahway. Indian man set off to his tent, sent an Englishman with him. January 1st was a significant holiday for Orcadians, and though William doesn't write anything about this, I wonder if the guests at Oxford House stayed to share in this celebration. The same guests were at Oxford House the next year, in 1800. On January 13th, he wrote, sent an Englishman to tent with the Indian, as the provisions are but little at the house for such a number of men as were meant to winter at it. Twelve Englishmen wintered at Oxford House. January 15th, one of the Englishmen came home from the Indians because, quote, they were starving. January 26th, all hands cutting firewood. January 27th, severe cold with drifts and bad weather. February 10th, men came back from the Indians with 522 pounds of moose flesh and 32 made beaver and 16 pounds of castorium. People coming to the house generally stay over. March 25th, first spring-looking day. 2 p.m. Indian man came to the house with the Englishman he had been taking care of, brought 36 pounds of dried moose meat and seven beaver skins. This means one of those two Englishmen sent to be with the Indians stayed with them for almost three months. March 27th, 6 p.m., Indian man and his wife came to the house with 26 beaver skins, 30 pounds of dried moose meat, and three parchment moose skins. So what is a parchment moose skin? The skin has been prepared, the parchment is stretched, scraped, and dried, whereas when leather is tanned, it is softened with a mixture of brains, liver, soapweed, and grease to make it soft, and is smoked to make it waterproof, and hung to dry to smoke in a tent, and then rubbed back and forth across a string to soften it. The women prepared the hides for use. Scraping the hides was hard, repetitive work, requiring strong wrists. When women scraped, young girls helped, the perfect opportunity for storytelling and sharing of knowledge. On April 2nd, 3 p.m., two Indian men came to the house with 50 made beaver. They slept four nights in coming to the house, end quote. I suspect they came from a great distance and needed rest. April 5th, two men making a beaver press saw a few snowbirds, the first of the season. April 11th, sent three men to gather pitch. April 13th, a hot day, snow wasting away, men back from gathering pitch, saw a swan, the first this season. April 17th, men sawing boat boards. April 25th, no hawks or geese seen as yet, which is very late for this season of the year. 
men cutting down palisades. Palisades are a fence or defensive wall for an enclosure. Stockades were built to help protect the buildings from driving wind and snow. May 20th, all hands employed packing furs. May 29th, three canoes of Englishmen embarked for York Factory with 1,600 made beaver. Normally, William would be the one to deliver the furs to York Factory. I would guess he would be feeling a little restless at not going. The last of the ice was out of the lake on June 5th. The mosquitoes were very bothersome. This is the only time William comments on this problem. The smoking pot used to control mosquitoes didn't come into use for a few more years. July 29th, covering the storehouse with pine bark. There was lots of trade of meat. November 5th, lake covered with ice. The trading of meat slows down in November. On January 2nd, 1800, Indian man and family departed, which makes me think they celebrated the new year with Nahue and William. There was no food shortage for the rest of that winter. A son named John was born in 1799. I found very little information about this child. William's handwriting became more difficult to read in the 1799-1800 Post Journal. This was the beginning of his illness, of fatigue, of the tremendous physical strain his body had been under since 1782. We get a fairly clear idea and picture of what life was like for William and, and also Nahue. Hi, hi, which means thank you in Cree. Hi, hi for listening. Bye for now.